Welcome to the Workplace Happiness Podcast, brought to you by me, Mark Price, and my platform, Engaging Works, designed to help you be happier at work. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that we work, how being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can also transform an organisation. So my mission is to get the world a little bit happier at work. In doing so, I've created a happiness survey, which measures and then compares to others how happy you are at work. It's free to take, and you can find out about it at engaging.works. In the Workplace Happiness podcast, I'll be speaking to people from all walks of life about how they work and their happiness at work. From people who've had career changes to entrepreneurs who forge their own career paths. It's all about happiness and how we recognise this happiness at work and all get a little bit happier. It's my very great pleasure in in this podcast to be talking to Fiona McIntosh about her incredible career. Um, Fiona, as you're about to discover, was born in Australia. Uh, rose to uh, tremendous heights in the uh, magazine industry, uh, was the editor-in-chief of L and Launch Grazzi, and then went on to be a very successful entrepreneur uh, in 2013, uh, launching Blow, uh, an innovative service for people to get uh, all their beauty treatments uh, from home. So Fiona, welcome to the Workplace Happiness podcast. Uh, what I'd like to start by asking you is what decided you to go into a career in journalism uh, when you were growing up in Melbourne, Australia? Well, um, well, thanks, Mark, for inviting me on this. Um, I'm a big fan of your podcast, so it's, it's really exciting to be on it. Um, so what made me want to get into journalism? Well, um, uh, good question. I was a sort of a clueless 17-year-old um, in my last year of school. Um, doing my HSC, which was equivalent to A-levels here. And I was trying to work out what I wanted to do at uni. Um, I was thinking about either doing law, but I thought that might be too dull, um, or graphic design, which was the other thing I really loved, art. Um, But I was a bit worried about the career I could have out of that. But then a friend... Uh, one of my friends was applying for a cadetship at our local newspaper, the Melbourne Herald. And I thought, oh, well, that sounds like a laugh. I might go along and try out as well. And I'd just recently seen all the president's men um, on TV. And I thought, yeah, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to go and break the Watergate scandal or something like that. Um, which, of course, I I have never done anything like that since. But I thought, oh, that sounded great. So I applied for the cadetship and um, miraculously got it, which was great. So I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, I arrived for my first interview there in a a smocked Laura Ashley dress. I was a very protected Melbourne schoolgirl at that point. Um, And then a couple of months later, I found myself sitting on a desk with quite a few rattled old hacks who ordered us to go and buy them fags and cans of coke and told us all about the jacuzzi parties they'd had the night before. So it was 
um, a huge learning curve um, starting on a newspaper back in those days, back in the 80s. Um, but it was still quite misogynistic at the time. Oh my God, I, you can't even begin to. <laughs> it's a very different world we're living in now. But I have to say, they were, they were pretty fantastic, actually. I mean, you know, there, there was that. It was a very different world back then. But you did get some fantastic opportunities, like, you know, you'd, you'd be sent off to do court reporting and you'd have to file in a, in a telephone box feeding coins into the telephone um, while filing, while reading your notes, well, you, um, your handwritten notes as you filed your copy. Um, and then things like police rounds, you'd go on the graveyard shift, you'd sit in the police station and wait for a call. Um, and then you go tearing out to look at a house fire or a terrible car accident where they were still bringing bodies out. And I mean, you look back now and you think, oh my God, I was 17 when I was doing that. You know, I, I have a 17 year old at home and I, I'd just be horrified <laughs> if she ever did something like that at her age. So I suppose... And, it, and did that feel shocking to you at the time or did you just take to it quite easily? I did. I really did not like those, those car accidents. I, I, I absolutely dreaded seeing that and it, it, no, I did not like that at all. But you just kind of had to get on with it, um, you know. You had, and it was a shift that was from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning, and you just had to deal with whatever came up. What did your parents think? Um, that's that's a good question. I don't. I I think they thought, oh well, that's not much fun, is it? But they certainly weren't horrified. I don't think. <laughs> It was a very different time. And uh, how did that change you? I, it completely, mixing with those, mixing with a group of very funny and very bright, interesting people, um, I absolutely loved it and learning from them um it was and it was a pretty tough environment but but i actually really enjoyed it and and you know i just had to toughen up and grow up i think that was you know that's what you had to do um and did that experience then sort of tell you that you had to go into journalism it was what you were born for oh my god i just loved it from day one absolutely loved it and loved you know finding things out and learning things and you know there, there was there was the sort of more serious side like that like court reporting but then also the great thing about cadetships and they put you on every aspect of the, of the newspaper and you know I was put on the tv section and flown up to Sydney and going to all these parties that the tv channels were hosting and you know we just had an absolute ball I thought well actually this is the bit I quite like I like I like this bit <laughs> I think I found my niche here. Um, you can take your car accidents. I think I'd rather be doing this. And then you continued at the paper while you were taking your degree? Yes. And how yeah. did that work? Um, it was quite difficult because we were, we were going in to do our arts degree um, at uni while we were doing the apprenticeship at the newspaper. And um, 
it was an afternoon newspaper. So we had to start really early in the morning. And, you know, I had a lot of friends who were at uni and who, of course, were living the life of Riley. So I'd go out with them and party and then get to my desk at six, not having gone to sleep at all. So there was a bit of that going on. But, you know, you can do that when you're 18. <laughs> and, and then when you finish your degree. Yeah. What, I mean, was it just always obvious that you were then going to go full time into journalism? Oh, well, it kind of was. You, you kind of, once you're in, you're in. So I did, I finished my cadetship um, on the Melbourne Herald. And then I went to London. Um, with someone, a friend of mine, a school friend of mine who just finished uni and this is what we'd always want to do. So we, you know, I left my job and we went travelling, railing around Europe um, and had a great time. Then landed in London and, and got a job working for the Murdoch Bureau in London. And but, how old were you then, Fiona? Um, I was, by then I was 22. So, yes. And then soon after that, I got some shifts in the Daily Mirror and worked my way up from the sort of listing section to becoming woman's editor there, which I really enjoyed. So features and women's features were the things that, that I felt I really liked. And, and just going back to sort of um, doing the thing that lots of Australians and Kiwis tend to do, leaving their country and coming over to the UK, yeah. How, how did your parents feel about you leaving? Did they know that you were planning to stay full time in the UK? How, how did you feel about making that trip? Because that's a big thing for anybody. To I know do. it is. And no one ever goes out thinking that they're not going to come back. Um, and I certainly didn't either. I thought, oh, I'll, I'll have 18 months in London and then go back. That was the plan. But um, there was something about arriving in London. I just completely loved it. And I almost felt, you know, almost had an epiphany that this is sort of where I'm meant to be. Um, and have had a love affair with London ever since. What year was that that you arrived in London? Oh my God, that would have been 89, I think. And what was London like in 89? Um, it was... Oh, we had, we had, oh God, we had a great time. So we had a house full of Australians in Earlsfield and we paid very little rent. We lived in this amazing house with a big garden. We, none of us had any money because we're all, you know, on our first jobs. And, but yet we could live really well. Um, and I just think I was very, very lucky to be there at that time um, because I don't think you could do that now. And your first job in London was with Murdoch. So what did you do? Um, so that was, I worked in the London Bureau for his Australian newspapers. So we basically filed stories back to the Australian newspapers on anything that was happening in London and Europe. And how, how did that newsroom environment feel in London in 89? Well, it was a very tiny newsroom. There was only myself and a few others. And um, so we, it, we weren't in the cut and thrust of a huge newsroom. We were, we were sort of this little satellite room, um, which, was, which was good. Um, it was fine. But actually, when I started doing shifts at the Daily Mirror, um, that's when I was exposed to this vast 
exciting newsroom. And I'd literally just started when, um, you know, there were some big stories happening at the time. Um, Maxwell died, literally, <laughs> a few weeks um, after I started. So we're all scrambling to do those stories. And it was a, it was a culture. I think I caught the last of that Fleet Street culture where there were lots of long lunches, um, lots of big expense accounts, and everyone had a lot of fun. And literally, they were the dying days. Um, but I was lucky enough to to see them. <laughs> what job did you go in to do when you arrived at the Mirror? Oh well, I was very junior, so I was just doing like whatever the features editor needed an extra pair of hands doing, you know, mainly the listing section and little tiny pieces. And yeah, I learned from the team there. It was very different to working there than it was in Melbourne because it was a lot, a lot faster and they had far more expectations from you, but you know, a really fun team. And I learned a lot. Um, what did you learn? Um, I had to learn how to structure a story properly as far as, you know, it, it bringing out what people want to, to read. I mean, it was also pretty tough too. When you're going out on a feature, they said, don't come back till you've got this, you've asked this, this and this question from a celebrity. <laughs> so you had to ask some fairly rude questions of people because you needed, you know, they needed a line. It was all about getting the line. What's the line that's going to sell your story? So it did teach me that you have to ask the right questions to get the line, to make it an interesting story. Otherwise, there's no point. And reflecting on that period in your early career, what, what advice would you give people now who, wanted, who want to work in the media? I don't know. It's a very, very different landscape now. And people have asked me this. I, you know, I was lucky enough to start on a local newspaper. I'm not sure if you can even still do that anymore. Um, I think probably the best way in if you're starting out is to, is to build your own brand and presence online. I think you need to have uh, a really good blog because I think that's your CV, that's your you demonstrating that you can write and that you have a good eye for a story. Um, I think that's really important. Um, uh, that would be the first thing I would ask to see, I think, if someone was coming to me asking for a newspaper job, well, show me how you can write. What have you had published? And, you know, you, you need to show me that you can write. And I think that's the way that, that you can demonstrate it now. And then what was your first management type role in the mirror where you were managing a team? Um, well, it was as woman's editor. Um, I mean, I obviously had to report into a features editor and, and, a new, and you know, the editor. But I, get to, I got to go into newspaper conference, which I loved because you got to hear from everybody about what was going on in the world that day. Um, and I had a very tiny team, um, but I liked having a little bit of autonomy over what I could put in my section and fight for the stories that I wanted to put in that section. 
What are your early memories of managing that small team? Um, I just, I liked working with the pictures and the words and creating um, some compelling stories. And I learned, there was a really brilliant boss I had there, Mary Riddell, who I learned a lot from. And she helped me craft a story and tell me what a good story was. And she really helped me. Um, so I was very grateful to her. Um, yeah, just learning what people were interested in reading about um, and how to present that story in the most compelling way. And write a headline too, because you had to do that. And, and a cover line. And did you work for any bad bosses? Um, you don't yeah. have to name them. <laughs> of course I did. Um, and I have to say, yeah, there was one. Um, I won't mention any names, but only because he, he, you never knew what he wanted and he was incredibly temperamental and he kind of enjoyed breaking us down until we were in tears. Um, so you'd go into the loo and have a good old sob. And it takes quite a bit to, to do that to me, but I, he managed to do it. Um, but you couldn't ever let him see that you'd been upset or crying. So you had to sort of pull yourself together, then come out again. And did you learn any from, anything from that, Fiona, about the way that you manage people, particularly now uh, you've got your own company? Yeah, um, I think I learned more from the really great women I worked with, I think. And I think they were quite tough, but they were fair. And yeah, I, I, I think that's probably, but I have, I have mellowed over the years, I think, because I think management styles have mellowed as well. Um, but yeah, and I think, but always trying to be really supportive of, of the young women on, on my team as well, I think. And I've mainly worked with women through my career. And of course, on women's magazines, your, your team is basically 90% women. And when you look back now to that time as woman's editor at the Mirror, mm -hmm. and how um, you might have portrayed women's issues, and then how they've developed over time. Where, where's the big change been there? Oh, I think over, um, I think body issues are a huge thing. Um, I think, and I think that's only been really recently, actually. Um, I think there was terrible sort of body shaming that went on in the old days you know, the things that you could write about people um, was, was awful. And I'm glad that's, that that period is over. Um, and I think that there was the whole anorexia thing. I think at one point there were, were far too many models who were too thin. Um, that was not something we ever promoted ourselves, but I think that was about the designers choosing the types of models they put on the catwalk. And I think that... that there was a phase when there were terribly, terribly thin models. And I, that's not the case now. I love the fact that girls are much more relaxed about their body shapes. I'm particularly pleased about that because I have two teenage daughters and I'm thrilled that they're not living through 
the era that we did back then. And so tell us where you went to next after um, being women's editor of The Mirror. What was the next career step for you? Um, yeah, um, I really loved doing the women's section. So I thought my next step is, and I was terribly bolshy and, and determined um, in those days. So I then really wanted to be editor of a magazine. Um, and I heard that there was an editorship coming up at Hearst Magazines or Nat Mags, as it was then called. And yeah. I applied and that's when I got my big break. And I just want to add here that the man who did give me that break very, very sadly died a few days ago. Um, no, Terry Mansfield. Yeah. From he Korea. was a great guy. Absolute legend. And, you know, there are many of us who were, who were very heartbroken to hear that news um, and because he was the you know little sprightly crackled with energy and he was so supportive and fantastic and and you know he was the sort of person who you thought would go on forever so it's it's terribly terribly sad a lot of people like me have you know owe, owe their careers to him so, so what's your favorite terry mansfield story <laughs> Um, I think, well, you know, he gave me the job, which was fantastic. He took a real punt on me because I'd never even worked for a magazine, let alone. And that was, and that was to edit company. Yes, to edit company magazine. Um, and then, I mean, I think back then, I mean, we're talking, what, 95, I think. And back then there was this huge sort of competition among young women's magazines to see who could come up with the most outrageous stories about sex. Um, because at that point it was all about newsstand sales, who's got the most compelling cover line, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so we all, we all pushed it. We really pushed it. Um, sometimes more than we should have done. And um, we knew we were in trouble if we got a call from Terry's rather formidable PA <laughs> requesting a presence in his office ASAP. So I remember once we did a, a feature on, on condoms and the art department had spent ages inserting various vegetables into condoms and, um, you know, not a very grown up thing to do, but we thought it was quite funny at the time. Um, and anyway, Terry somehow got wind of this. I don't know how, I think he had spies going around the building and he heard that we were doing this. And so I got the call. Um, so I had to sheepishly go upstairs clutching my page proofs and, and hand them over to Terry for inspection. Um, and I thought, God, this is so embarrassing. So I handed the proofs over and he sort of looked up from at me over his glasses and he said, it isn't terribly classy, is it, Fiona? <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, I'm sorry it's not, but um, I don't think, W.H. Smith will have a problem with it, Terry, because it's only vegetables and who could possibly be offended by vegetables? And to his credit, he let it go. Um, he, let it, he let us run it and we weren't pulled off the shelves, which was, which was good. So yeah, I mean, that was always those moments when poor Terry had to intervene. I, I wasn't there for long because I then went on to L. but- How old were you when you, um, you were the, became the the editor-in-chief of company? Oh, 28, 29, something like that. So young. 
Sorry? When, that's so young, isn't it? When you look back now, yeah. you, think, you think, gosh, I achieved so much at such a young age. Yeah. Yeah. Although, yeah, I suppose it was, a, yeah, I suppose there are times in your life when you've got a lot of energy and determination, and I had that then. Um, yeah. So I was lucky to, yeah. And looking back at that first big, big job, mm. what do you think to yourself, that was really good? And what do you think, if I had my time again, I really wouldn't do that? Setting apart the story of Terry and the vegetables and coffee. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, oh, what shouldn't I have done? Um, I think I learned to listen a bit more because I think I went in like a bulldozer. Right, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, blah. And actually, I needed to learn a lot on, on the job. And I had a brilliant publisher, Jan Adcock, who, who helped me. And I had the other editors were wonderful, particularly Fiona McPherson, who was editor of, of Harper's, and she helped me too. And once I sort of, and of course, Terry. Um, and once I stopped and listened to them a bit more about what to do, um, that really helped. <laughs> and so how long did you uh, edit company for, for our listeners? And then why did you make the step on to Al? Um, I edited company for about three years. And, and in that time, we won magazine of the year, which was fantastic. Um, I was really thrilled about that. Um, and then I was approached to become editor of Elle by EMAP. Um, and which, of course, I was terribly, terribly excited about because back in those days, Elle was a very influential fashion magazine. This was obviously pre-social media, pre-influencers, pre-internet shopping. Um, I think it was 88. So fashion magazines in those days were, were big deals. Um, we had big budgets. We had made loads of money on advertising and it was just a completely different world. We had indecent amounts of fun um, on a woman's magazine back in those days. We were always fitting off some fashion shows. We had editorial conferences at Babington House, you know, we constantly sent presents from Gucci or Versace. And I remember one day, going out and there was this massively long box and everyone was standing around excited saying open it open it and it was a pair of skis from Prada that had just arrived you know who even knew Prada did skis anyway um but then also we, we sort of you know it was a time when we also started to put celebrities on our covers um which was a bit of a first back then and you know we could call Jennifer Aniston's people um and we'd fly over a team and spend a day with her on a shoot and do an interview. And they didn't even ask for copy approval. And they just loved the fact an actress could be a cover star. And so we had this glorious sort of 12 months of, of some really fabulous covers, you know, JLo, even Madonna. And, um, you know, we had a really great team, you know, who are still my really good friends, Rachel Lowe, Sarah Bailey, Joe Sams. And, we just had this fantastic time doing, you know, some great shoots with stars and, and but also the content of, of the, we tried to make the content as zeitgeisty 
you know, as, as possible for, for young women at, the, at that time. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was really good fun. I, I did about four years at Elle and it gave me won some awards, which was, which was great. So that During was, that time, um, as you sort of matured um, and yeah. became more and more experienced, what, what did you learn about yourself and what did you learn about the way you manage people? Um, I don't think I'm the best people manager there is. Um, and I was beginning to learn that I think the bit that I really enjoyed was the, the architecture of a magazine and taking something over and, and, you know, perhaps reinventing it or taking it in a different direction and bringing the team with you to do that. That was the fun part for me. I think the day-to-day -day editing, I, I didn't enjoy so much. Um, I, I love the features conferences. I love the ideas that we've been, I love the ideas part of it. I did not enjoy the people management side so much. <laughs> I'm just not cut out for it, I don't think. Um, yeah. Why is that? I don't know. I, I, I think I'm really impatient and I don't think I'm terribly empathetic. <laughs> um, and I just like things to be done and I want people to just get on and do them. I, I'm not. And do you think, do you think that was a trait of successful uh, people in the magazine industry at the time? And do you think things have changed since? No, I don't think, I think it was just, I mean, because, um, I know some fantastic editors who are brilliant at day-to-day -day editing. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't think so. Um, and so you'll have been asked this question a million times. The, the Meryl Streep character in The Devil Wears Prada. Yeah. How lifelike do you think that is to uh, a magazine editor of a fashion, top fashion magazine. And we're gonna come on to you taking on the Grazzi role in a minute. So yeah. with that in mind, is that a good characterization? No, not, no. I don't think it ever was in the UK. Maybe the generation before me were like that. We did used to hear fabulous stories about, you know, the Marcel Daji Smiths and, and the, the generation before us who had drivers and people coming in to do their hair and, you know, amazing things. I, do, I, I don't think that was our generation. And I think it happens in America. We went to visit magazines in America and they certainly had that set up where they had two PAs on desks outside their offices. And they were incredibly haughty, the editors. I, I, don't, I never saw that in the UK. And, and so tell us now about moving on, hugely successful at Elle, uh, Grazi is going to be launched. Tell well, there was a little bit of a gap between then. Um, uh, yeah, I'd had a child, I'd stepped back a bit, I did um, a stint on the Evening Standard ES magazine, so back to a newspaper, which I enjoy going to conferences, but I missed the autonomy um, a bit. Um, and then was quite happy doing a plural job of, you know, 
writing a column here, doing some consultancy there, etc. Um, and could quite happily have stayed doing that, I think. But um, then EMAP called and said they wanted to launch um, a new magazine. In the split between Hachette and EMAP, they'd lost all their glossy titles, L and Red, etc., and they needed to establish themselves back in the market with a new glossy launch. Um, and that was something I couldn't resist. So, but instead of launching a monthly, um, I really pushed for us to launch a weekly. Um, and they had simultaneously been talking to the Italian publishers of Grazia in, in Milan. Um, so it all kind of fell into place. So we worked on a dummy for that, um, for Grazia and launched that in February 2005. Um, and it was huge, absolutely huge. I can remember at the time I was in Waitrose and I was the marketing director. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, and Judith um, was your commercial director. I can't remember her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. And uh, I can remember it was a super big deal that, the, that this magazine, Grazi, was going to come out in the UK. Um, uh, so it, it just had huge expectations that went before it. Did, did you feel in, in any way intimidated? Oh, God, enormously. Um, yeah, the pressure was uh, off the scale because they put a lot of money into it too, which we were constantly made very aware of. It was kind of the last big launch, really, um, looking back on it. Um, so there was a lot, a lot riding on it. Um, and we, you know, and, and it was something very different. Um, because, and, you know, we, we called it a, a weekly glossy, you know, the glossy magazine you can buy every week, rather than a glossy weekly which we thought was a pimped up weekly. And, and there were a lot of bad connotations about weekly magazines that they were cheap and they were supermarket versions. So we had to convince advertisers that this was a glossy you could buy every week. So forget about all your preconceptions about what a weekly is. This is a glossy you can buy weekly. And absolutely sure that the frequency was the right thing to do because it, there was that disruptive element to the frequency. I mean, I know um, last days of L, I was very frustrated that with a monthly magazine, you, you have a six-week lead time. So by the time the magazine comes out, a lot of it looks old hat or, you know, it's, it's dated. Um, and that was getting increasingly more evident with, with glossy, glossy. So it was important to us that we did that weekly thing. And so literally we could have things that were in the stores that week um, on sale and you know we needed to feature that we had news that we could we could pick up happening news breaking news um, because it would just be a few days before it was on the newsstands and this was brilliant for a journalist to be able to do this and, and it was important that we got the right mix of high low you know, new, news and shoes was the expression we came up for it. You know, on page seven, you'd have something about the famine in India. And on page 37, you'd have a roundup of summer sandals. You know, it was this sort of crashing mix of, of popular culture and fashion and, and news and opinion um, that we sort of melded together. 
And the team was really diverse too. We had people from tabloids sitting on the bench. We had ex-Vogue and you know, Sunday Times fashion people sitting at the end of the room. And so it was a very diverse group of people we were bringing together as well. And how did you find and building that team? I loved building the team. Absolutely loved it. And, and the core team, and Jane Bruton, who went on to, to be editor, Marion Jones, Vicky Harper, Harper, you know, hilarious, brilliant journalists um, who are now all at the Telegraph. But they... They, you know, they were there for 10 years and, and it was a really great team. And, you know, yeah, it, uh, that was really great. And it was exhausting and stressful and totally exhilarating it, exhilarating as well. And would you say that was the highlight of your career in journalism? Oh, yeah, without question. Um, but it was also terrifying as well because it didn't take off immediately. Um, we mucked up the covers to begin with they're all looking too similar um it was only when we we started experimenting with them and doing a three-quarter length shot of a celebrity looking a certain way that they suddenly started to to sell um and we also had a terrible mexican standoff with advertisers who refused to pay the premiums that we were asking for ad space um and you know spent a good six months before they they were broken down and it was actually the pr um community who said you know for god's sakes our brands have got to be in this magazine people are reading it and talking about it and it was only then that it was broken down but we had six very hairy months of of thinking oh my god is this going to work or not and tell me how do you deal with uh, pressure and stress because uh, that must be a pretty stressful period <laughs> it was how do i deal with it oh i don't know um I, I, I'm, I'm okay. I don't think I'm brilliant at dealing with, 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 with stress, but I, I managed it. Um, I was, wasn't ever in a hurry to go back to having those levels of stress again, though. Um, yeah. But we had a very, very tight, supportive team. You know, David Davies, the publisher, and Jane and I, you know, um, and our boss, Paul Keenan, who was great too, we sort of supported each other through it, going, hold your nerve, hold your nerve, hold your nerve, deep breaths. And, and if you were advising somebody now who was going to go through a similar level of, of anxiety and pressure, what, what would your advice to them be? I think the support of other people is, in, is incredibly important because if we hadn't, there was never a blame culture there. It was, it was never well, it's not selling because it's your fault. It's not selling because it's your fault. You know, there was never that. And I think it, if it had disintegrated into that, we would have all been in trouble. But we all backed each other's other up and had each other's backs, which I think you've got to be able to really trust the people you work with and have a really strong bond with them, particularly in a situation like that where it can go horribly wrong if you're not careful. And, and can you describe for people what, a normal working day would have looked like for you at Grazzi? Um, yeah, well, I think that... Grazzi, well, I should say. Yeah, um, I think, well, I mean, the, the week always kicked off with, I think was the best part of the week for me, was always the, the morning conference. Um, 
and that happened most mornings where everyone would sit together and pull together ideas. And it was really just, what are we interested in this week? You know, let's look at the photos that have come out overnight. Let's look at the stories. How can we spin this? You know, what's everyone talking about? What's happening at home? What are you talking about at home? You know, um, relationships, you know, shopping. Um, what are you talking about in the news this week? Did you see this on TV last night? All of that. So pooling all of that and then harnessing it into a magazine was great. And then it was really just, just you know, pulling it all together, working on that, that news section um, was probably the bit I enjoyed most and the features. And then, you know, seeing what the lifestyle section and fashion sections and beauty sections were doing. Yeah. And, and I mean, it was very, we were all chained to the desk, though. It's none of this, you know, going out for lunch business. Yeah, well, that's, that, that that's what I was going to ask. But the picture is that you would travel the world and go to fashion shows and yeah. uh, long lunches and no, uh, parties no. every evening. No, definitely not. Not with a weekly. Um, no, and I think lunch culture had sort of finished by then anyway, hadn't it? I mean, I think, I don't think anyone was doing long lunches then. Um, that whole culture died out but but on a weekly there's no way you would have the time to do that it, it's really relentless um and you did go to the shows but you went to the shows because you had to for advertisers and you know it was great fun but you were there for a reason you were hauled around to speak to all the clients who were booking pages in your magazine so yeah and then fiona in 2013 you set up blow Yes. So an amazingly entrepreneurial thing to do after your time uh, in journalism. So how did that come about? And just talk us through that journey. Um, well, someone I used to work with, Dimash Mystery, who was actually on the board at EMAP when we launched Grazia. And he was always, you know, one of the cleverest people in the room. And, you know, we'd always got along quite well. And so he, we kept in touch um, after L days and got involved in a couple of things that he, will work, he was working on in the digital space, which was interesting because it may help me learn more about this digital world that was emerging. Um, and then he said, look, I've got an idea for a business, you know, would you be interested in, in joining me um, on it? Because he, his background's very much business and tech. And, and working with startups and funding startups. Mine is obviously totally opposite creative. So we're, we were quite good yin, yin and yang there. Um, and yeah, so we sort of, he said, you know, he's got this idea for blow dry bars. We extended it into the idea of all sorts of beauty services. And then eventually the model became a platform and an app to book beauty services on demand to your home. We'd sort of been watching what was happening with Deliveroo and Uber and the rise of, of those platforms and thinking, we sh you know, we, we should be doing something for beauty. And, I mean, you're commonly described, I don't know if you'd agree with it, as being the Uber of the beauty service world. Um, yes. So, so... I, I'm not sure if that's entirely correct because... Only, I mean, as far as the tech side works, that, that's, that's not a bad description. But as far as our team, you know, they, they are freelancers with their own 
jobs who are, who are very experienced. So, and it's about helping them find jobs as well. But you've grown it now to a huge scale. So there are lots of people who are thinking about setting up something new or want to be entrepreneurs. So you've got this idea, you've got funding, which is great. What did you do next? How, how did you start it? How did you build it? What were the challenges? Um, there were a lot of challenges because we started it as a physical space. We launched in Covent Garden with a physical um, store um, doing blow dries, makeup and nails. The concept was fast beauty, almost like a, a pit stop. You could come in and 50 minutes later, you could walk out with blow dried hair, makeup and nails. And so that really caught on and we used all our sort of contacts in the media and we had some fantastic publicity around that. And so that was all going really well. But we realised that, you know, with the way that, that London, central London rates and, and rent and everything goes, you know, it, it was, you know, crippling to, to businesses. And we've only just seen that become even more of a challenge, you know, as you look at what's happening in the retail space at the moment. So we made the decision quite soon after that to pivot to do on demand, which required a lot of changes and a lot of in the team. We had to get people in who knew how to do that. We had to change the business model completely and get new funding in to build the app, to build the technology behind that. Um, we made that decision quite quickly um, and it was a painful pivot, but it was one that we are very glad we did. Um, I mean, we've now got nearly 100,000 customers across London, Manchester and Birmingham, and we've got 800 beauty professionals on the platform too, which is, which is great. But it really built from that point when, when we had to make that decision to, to pivot to on-demand. And you're doing wonderful work in training now, developing uh, skills. Yeah, I think that's one of the things we're most proud of is you know, I'm, I'm a great believer in flexible working. I've done that, you know, at stages throughout my career. And I think it's great that we're able to offer flexible working to all the beauty professionals who, who are on our platform. And I think that's why they like, like it. You know, there are lots of working mums um, who are on there and they can put in the hours that they want to work. You know, they can build it around childcare. They can build it around other interests. They're not locked into the salon model of, you know, nine to five, um, which, you know, is an old, old fashioned model. So we feel that we're sort of disrupting it in, in a good way for them. Um, and, and, you know, and they, they can also earn more too they can earn up to twice as much as they would in a salon you know depending on how many hours they work but it, it's you know a lot of them are, are, are incredibly grateful for the the chance they have to 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 build up build their career through our platform so yeah that's something I'm proud of and we're talking now uh, over a video conferencing line not face to face yeah uh, because of the uh, the corona lockdown so um so tell me what was your working day like before the lockdown? Um, well, I, I work, I mean, at the beginning when we launched Blow, um, I was working furiously flat out full time. Um, I now work, I spend half my week in the office um, and half my week at home 
<clears throat> writing. Um, I still write for newspapers. Um, I, I enjoy doing that. So I'm, you know, I think I'm the plural career is 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 something that I'm I'm happier with. I think. Um, so yeah, I and I love the time that I spend in the office because it gives me a chance to you know have those casual meetings and conversations with people as well, catch up what they're doing, and I think you get a lot lot from that. Uh, and you, you can read the temperature of the business and how people are feeling about things and any gripes they might have or any any great things that have happened which is difficult when you're when you're not in um so yeah i you know when i'm in the office it's trading meetings marketing meetings meetings with our partners it's writing comms it's you know clearing newsletters it's doing all that kind of stuff and so with social distancing and the lockdown clearly yeah. that had a huge effect on your business so how are you yeah. coping with that fiona um, well, we temporarily closed our on-demand services. We had to do that. You know, we, we actually closed before the government advised us to because we felt it was morally, socially and ethically the right thing to do. Um, we are supporting all our teams through this time. Um, and I think we're realising that very quickly that communication is absolutely key to this. Communication to all our customers that, hey, we're still here. Um, we are giving them free video tutorials on how to look after themselves, their beauty needs while there's lockdown. We're engaging with them as much as we can. Um, we've still got a small e-com um, business going. Um, and it's really about stick with us. And, you know, now we're working on the plan because we think, you know, once it's over, there'll be an explosion of, of <laughs> bookings because <laughs> everyone will be desperate to get stuff done. Um, so, we, you know, we're building on behind the scenes on plans to do that. In fact, in lockdown this week, it's been the busiest I've been for a long time um, because we're having to communicate so much to our customers and our stylists as well. Um, yeah. And how are you finding working from home all the time now in lockdown? I prefer not to be here all the time, but I'm probably finding it easier than a lot of people because I do actually really enjoy working from home and I have been doing quite a bit of it anyway, but it's just a little too much. And, you know, I'm, I'm in a house with a husband and, and two teenage children who are not thrilled about being locked in a house with me either, <laughs> I think. So what, what are your three tips then to um, remain sane and be effective? When you're working from home well i think what we've done we've got we've got a really you know we've got a really good young team um and a fabulous new ceo who's who's put in some very very quickly put in some great work practices to keep everybody engaged and motivated and i think certainly the morning zoom calls with management then one-on-ones we've got um a very active slack channel to you know keep that team communication going and we're also you know giving people suggestions on how they manage their time with timetables also great online free yoga classes you can join i'm personally a fan of a bit of joe wicks for 15 minutes <laughs> class i've got a very 
rubbish makeshift gym in a half our sitting room at the moment. So um, using that as much as we can. Um, so yeah, it's about, you know, giving them as much support and advice over this time as possible. I should, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, yeah. I shouldn't say this, Fiona, but you, you've, you made me chuckle inside when you said, um, we have a very active Slack channel. <laughs> it made me think it might be the cover line from one of your company magazines. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and the power of communication is very important. Um, so, so what do you least like about working from home? Um, I, yeah, I think I, I miss the interaction with the team. Um, you know, and, and just a sort of the in incidental interaction, I think. You know, standing at someone's desk, how are you? You know, funny things that happened in the weekend. You know, some some a film that someone's just seen that they really liked, thought was really rubbish. You know, I think that human interaction is 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 something that we're we're missing. But also, I think you know, I'm I'm lucky. I'm you know old and you know I've, I've sort of had you know I had an amazing time in my 20s and I, and I feel for the the team who are in their 20s because working with your colleagues and socializing with your colleagues is such a big part of being young and I think you know there'll obviously be some people who are really struggling I think um, and, and I, I feel for them more than sort of people my generation I think. And, and tell me what's your favorite thing about working from home? Oh, without question, not having to get anywhere near the Northern Line, which is hell on earth. <laughs> it's brilliant not having to go on the tube in the morning, in the morning. And my, my last question, for your teenage children, yep. based on all that you've done and seen, what advice would you give them about their working lives? I think, I think they're going to have very different working lives to us. Um, I can see at the end of this that perhaps this will be the beginning of the end of nine to five office culture. I don't know how rapidly that may happen, but I think we're all questioning why do we need to go and sit in an office from nine to five? Um, all of us. I think some of us are looking at hybrid models where perhaps some people work from home, some people work from an office. It'll be interesting to see. I think we're, we're going to emerge into a rather different world. I think their generation's quite entrepreneurial as well, um, which I think is a really good thing. And they also have the tools to be more entrepreneurial with, with everything that's going on in the digital world. I don't feel I can give them any advice, actually, because I think they are going to be dealing with 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 you know a, a different world that that they have to navigate that yeah <laughs> i don't know okay and if you're listening to music fiona last question what piece of music do you listen to that makes you feel most happy oh uh, yes i was wondering if you were going to ask me this so i did have a I have a think about this and um it was actually something that we listened to it New Year's Eve and and all oh, my girlfriends and I got onto the floor after quite a few drinks and and danced to this. Um, and it always makes us feel very happy. And it's um, 
Donna Summer, I Feel Love, which for any millennials out there actually came out in 1975. She is the queen of disco. She was the Beyonce of her day. She was a complete legend. And I urge you all to go and listen to it. I mean, it's a very famous song. You probably have already, but it, it's, that's what makes me feel happy. That's great. Fiona, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for sharing with us your amazing experiences from growing up in Australia to going into journalism, from being a, a world-renowned editor of Elle magazine and launching Grazi magazine in the UK, which was a huge success, and now being a digital entrepreneur. Um, we wish you every success in the future. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you for listening. And again, if you want to take control of your workplace happiness, go to engaging.works and take the free happiness survey. See you next time.